Welcome to a special of the British Broadcasting Century podcast and a hundred years of the finest listings magazine, nay, the finest magazine perhaps, certainly the one that I've bought more copies of than any other, The Radio Times. Or as it's been since 1937, Radio Times. Who needs the the? Yellow highlighters at the ready. If it's on, it's in. The official organ of the BBC turns 100. Over 5,000 issues, 19 editors, and we chat with one of them, Shem Law, in advance of their centenary i spoke with shem for the podcast at radio times hq town criers onwards you know people want to be told stuff yeah how we do that whether it be on an app or website or whether it's beamed directly into your head (laughs) you know but there'll be a version of radio times because how can there not be but of course we're all about the history the early days the origin stories so we'll also feature the grandson of the first editor leonard crocom yes from radio force today program justin webb broadcasting going way back in my family yeah it is extraordinary that he was there right at the start and a man who has the full set and helped digitize the back copies for the bbc genome project broadcast historian and radio times fan dr steve arnold I do not have furniture made out of back copies of the Radio Times. I I have to draw the line there. (laughs) Due to the sheer size and scale of the Radio Times story, this episode is split in two. So you're listening to part one. Part two will follow imminently. Part one will bring us from 1923 to 1991, and part two will be a tale of deregulation and digitization. Yes, on our regular podcast, we may be back in spring of 1923, but we're leaping ahead for one episode only, saying happy centenary radio times on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. This is London calling. As the Radio Times has now made its appearance and will give you full particulars of the week's programmes in advance, this will be the last of my Saturday night talks on coming events from 2LO. Watch that on Saturday. Circle that for Sunday. Ah, hello, hello. Just leafing through the latest edition. The week at a glance. Lots of articles, including behind-the-scenes interviews with the stars. There's sport, there's film, there's streaming nowadays. That's quite newish. TV, radio, podcasts. In fact, we were podcast of the week a year or so ago. Fancy that. Gardening books, puzzles, letters to the editor. Oh yes, it's another fab issue of the nation's favourite. Happy centenary to the Radio Times. And next to it here, I've also got the oldest copy of the Radio Times that's in my possession. This is issue number eight. And uh, what have we got here? There's a cover article from Reith. Yeah, he did most of those for the first year or two. I think he found it rather laborious. The first voice of the BBC, Arthur Burroughs, wrote to the first cover article, What's in the Air? And um, also in this issue then, we've got listings of the stations, a few faces behind the voices as well. That's what it was bringing to readers a hundred years ago. When you look back at things, you think, oh, wasn't that wonderful? And the truth is, when you go through old copies of Radio Times, God, there was some rubbish on, you know. It's, right, yes. yes. <laughs> so for every Morgan Wise, there's oh, you know, yeah. three blokes in the, the studio smoking and talking about Thank French you. existential movies. And you yeah. just think, really? So let's begin, shall we, with one of today's editors. Delighted to welcome to the British Broadcasting Century podcast, one of the two current editors of the world's greatest magazine. I was going to say greatest listings magazine. It's the world's greatest magazine, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Shem Law, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, my pleasure. Absolutely. And happy 100th. Uh, well, thank you. Um, I'm glad to say I wasn't around when it started, but I have been here ooh, for 22 years now. Wow. So it's been a pretty much half my career, if not slightly more than. So. Incredible, incredible. And I, I get, so you, your way into the Radio Times has been art and design and these sorts of things. And then now you're 
editing? Yes, uh, I came as uh, as an art director and um, the second art director that went to Cambridge Technology College, David Driver, who was uh, the Cambridge Art School, uh, he came as art director, uh, then went off to the Times. Uh, so yes, if you want to get in the weeds, uh, mm. Cambridge seems to have a hold on <laughs> the art direction of Radio Times. But no, I was then made deputy editor and art director, and then uh, eventually, just before COVID, uh, Tom and I were made editors. Our other guide in this two-parter is RT enthusiast and collector. He has the full set. Dr. Steve Arnold. In where you are, is it stacks of things? Is your entire furniture made of back copies of the Radio Times? I do not have furniture made out of back copies of the Radio Times. Okay. I, I have to draw the line there. <laughs> but I've got a complete bound set of Radio Times wow. from the first issue through to about 2010. And then I've kept up with the subscription since. Um, but I've got about... I don't know, about three tonnes of magazines. It's mainly radio and TV times. Wow. The complete set of Radio Times. There can't be... I didn't even know the Radio Times has the complete set of the Radio Times. So uh, The Radio Times know, do have a complete set. They do. Them, them and I, you. I can, I can confirm that. <laughs> them and you, and that's about it. Well, I don't have quite so many, but I took my oldest copy from November 1923 on my day out at RTHQ to show them off to editor Shem. Although I guess he's already got that one because they've got the lot. I brought with me here the 8th mm-hmm. edition and various old Christmas specials and things. It's a magical thing, but does it therefore mean, is it the best job in the world or is it a, a sense of, better not muck this up? If you work in magazines, I think you have to take it as that. It's probably the best job in this country and only because, and I've worked on lots of different kinds of magazines and you know the thing about most magazines is they're quite cyclical so if you work on a fashion magazine you have the summer wear you have you know your winter wear you have the various collections that come in a certain time and after about two years you just find yourself repeating all the time and and it doesn't really stretch you great thing about radio times it's about television and radio and television radio is about everything so Mm. it changes constantly yes you have the same you know oh it's call the midwife again (laughs) what have you and you do have to think about new ways of how you might get readers excited about the new series or whatever Mm. but television and radio is made by incredibly smart well-educated people who have terrific ideas they do a lot of the hard work for you (laughs) So what's the story behind the creation of the Radio Times then? There was the press ban in early 1923. And the newspapers were always against the BBC. A Radio Times connoisseur and collector, Dr Steve Arnold. Because it was seen right from the beginning to be poaching on their land. You know, oh, you can't broadcast the news because that's our domain. It was the, the newspapers actually kicking up a farce and saying, well, um, if you want to publish programmes in our papers, we're going to charge you as though they're adverts. Mm, And there was a boycott. And that's seen as the point where Reith thought, actually, we'll have our own paper. Reith's famous quote out of one of his diaries in the 60s, where he sort of muses on the fact that the increasing vulgarity of the Radio Times 
really rather makes me wish I hadn't started it in the first place. <laughs> and, you know, he had to start it because no one was going to print his radio listings because mm. uh, when he went to the newspapers, they said, there's this thing here you keep doing, which is called the news. Uh, that's what we do. Uh, actually, you can have, we'll, we'll take them, but you'll have to take them as, as adverts. It'll have to cost you. And he worked it out. It was going to cost him an absolute fortune. He might as well start mm. his own magazine. So the kernel of this idea came in February of 1923, and it led to behind-the-scenes plans afoot. wonder if it was helped in some way by the BBC attitude to drama. You see, with many theatrical agencies taken against these Johnny-come-lately broadcasters, fearing they'd steal their audiences from theatres, the BBC moved a lot of drama production in-house. So I wonder if maybe that gave Reith the idea that we can do the radio listings in-house as well. So this became a reality. Late in 1923, the publishers George Newness were given full editorial control and the BBC supplied them with listings and articles and off they went to the printers. But it was all in a bit of a rush at first. They didn't have time to advertise for an editor, so they got Leonard Crocombe. My grandfather, Leonard Crocombe, was the first editor of the Radio Times. Radio 4's Justin Webb. He spoke to us on an earlier edition of this podcast. And he was a friend of Lord Reith's, who I think put him in that position. Uh, he was a part of the setup. He'd been a magazine editor of Titbits and various kind of very um, well-read, popular magazines with funny little stories and jokes and things. Uh, and but he was a, he was a considerable figure and was obviously able to kind of turn a sentence quite. Right, well, Leonard Crocombe, your grandfather, was broadcasting on London 2LO with a monthly show uh, in 1923 before the... I didn't was. know that. Mm. No, you, you've told me something I didn't know oh, about. Okay. Uh, but reading out bits of tidbits, basically, pretty much. Right. Funny stories. <laughs> yeah. There was an elderly lady who I regret to say got very intoxicated one night and was taken to the police station. March the 14th, 1923, the BBC let him on the air with funny tales like this. So the next morning... She was brought before the magistrate, who was a very terse sort of man. And he said to her, he said, name? So she said, Angel. He said, address? She said, having. Oh, he said, how did you get here? She said, on a rainbow, dearie. So he said, right, six weeks for skylarking. Crocombe later wrote of how his Radio Times story began with the tinkle of my phone bell one summer morning in 1923. The mellifluent tones of my friend Arthur R. Burroughs, then director of programmes, spoke to me. Would I lunch with him that day? He had something important to discuss. We met at Simpsons. The important matter that Burroughs wished to discuss was the scheme by which my employers were to publish the Radio Times in collaboration with the BBC. So actually, when Crocombe was first approached, the Radio Times didn't have a title. That was given just a fortnight before publication. 10th of September, John Reith noted, Everything is now in shape for a BBC magazine, and from various alternatives, I chose Radio Times for the title. He was making it up as he went along. You know, you, you create a broadcasting service, and no one really knows what they're doing. Yet, magazines have been going for a long time. Magazines, So, you know, he had to hire magazine people. And and of course they would they wanted to make it entertaining and interesting and and fun for people and of course as far as he was concerned that was that wasn't educating people you know right. he, I mean I think Reith would just prefer it if every program was some sort of lecture <laughs> on something you know you're probably about right back to Crocombe who returned from a month's holiday in Belgium to be told I was also the editor of this Radio Times with a colleague Herbert Parker a nephew of the Right Honourable J R Klein's MP to look after the policy end for the BBC. 
Moreover, it had been decided by the BBC that the first number of the Radio Times must be ready for the press in seven days. And by St Caxton, we did it. Well, Crocombe mentioned Herbert Parker there, the man at the BBC's end. Well, Dr Steve Arnold, who's on this podcast, he's been doing some more digging on Herbert Parker. Steve tells me that Parker may actually have done enough to qualify as editor, even though he's not been acknowledged as such. Parker was, in fact, the man who gave the Radio Times the subheading The Official Organ of the BBC. Apparently, the smaller shareholding companies who made up the Beeb preferred journal to organ. That was noted by Reith in a memo to Parker on 19th of September 1923, just a week and a bit before issue number one was released. But the official organ of the BBC, it remained, written on each front cover until the Beeb became a corporation. From Wireless World magazine, 19th of September 1923. The British Broadcasting Company's new magazine. This new magazine, which the BBC is putting out, and I'm sure our readers will give it a hearty welcome as it fills a long-felt want, ought to be particularly valuable to the trade. It will print all the programmes of all stations a week ahead so that everyone can see exactly what is happening. The trade will be able to arrange demonstrations on a particular night. Ah, yes, a hidden benefit of the Radio Times. The 28th of September 1923, the Radio Times is launched. Its print run of a quarter of a million copies soon sells out. Arthur Burroughs arguably helped with that first one too. He certainly greeted listeners and readers on the front page. What's in the Air by Arthur R. Burroughs, Director of Programmes. Hello everyone, we will now give you the Radio Times, the good new times, the Bradshaw of broadcasting. May you never be late for your favourite wave train. Speed 186,000 miles per second, five hour non-stops. Family season ticket, first class, ten shillings per year. Steve Arnold wonders if Burroughs actually counts as the first guest editor for issue number one, because well, he was a celebrity back in those days. We'll look at what was actually in that first edition of the Radio Times when we reach September 1923 in this podcast's timeline. Well, I, I should say as well, there's a fine website you have, radiotimesarchive.com, that uh, that has, well, I particularly enjoyed the, the Mastheads um, page where you can see how it's changed over the years and even those little things I wouldn't even notice, like the fact that you've got the radio transmitter masts drawn in in the very first editions, but then by August 24, uh, what is it, issue number 49, you say here, the transmitter masts are removed because the number of locations has increased. So a little... Uh, seemingly minor things there, but the, the way it's evolved over the years, you've charted there, and it's it's a it's a lovely site, really nice. Well, that that's quite an interesting point because it shows how broadcasting was expanding. Issue forty nine is less than a year after Radio Time, so about two years after radio had started. So you had Birmingham, Manchester, London, and then it was a tumble it, it just kept on building up speed this stone was rolling down the hill the snowball is a better description because it was just building mm. and building and building and building and there were more and more stations coming on and on and on and on that's why radio times just got too bulky to have one edition you know 14 issue 49 they dropped the masthead um of having the transmitters on because they just couldn't fit any more transmitters on and radio was immensely popular. 1925. 
The BBC take full editorial control of the Radio Times. Herbert Parker, that supposed editor on the BBC side, left the BBC in March 1925 under a bit of a cloud and immediately joined up with a sort of rival to the BBC, the Wireless League. It's a campaign group set up by the Daily Express to apparently care for the interests of listeners. But in mid-August of 1925, Herbert Parker, who had helped launch the Radio Times, actually set up a rival publication to it. So this was called the Wireless League Gazette, and it had radio listings, and Herbert Parker was the editor. The design looked really just like the Radio Times, and it was subheaded the official organ of the new Wireless League, with a line drawing of Mr Herbert Parker on the front cover. But only one issue made it to press, because the BBC then brought in copyright lawyers, and that, my friends, is why for decades the Beeb had the sole right to print BBC listings, and why when I grew up the TV Times had ITV, while the Radio Times had the BBC. This, by the way, is fairly newish information. Thank you, Dr Steve Arnold, for this. Let's hear from Steve himself, shall we? It was all down to the stations to fill in their own programme, their schedules, which meant that the Radio Times had to carry schedules for each of those stations. And it got to the point where the national edition would have just been too big. 1926, the Northern-Southern Divide. So they, they split them out into two editions, a Southern and a Northern edition. The Northern edition covered Scotland, the north of England. It did still have bare bones schedules for the Southern stations, but there was no detail on those. So this was the first time that the Radio Times didn't each edition didn't cover everything. 1927. Eric Mashwitz becomes editor. Mashwitz, that is also an astonishing story. And he got hired because Fuller was such a disorganised... Um, everyone liked him, from all accounts. But he left a full set of proofs on a tube train going out to the printers and lost them and then had to go back to Broadcasting House and say, we're going to have to proof the issue again because <sighs> I, I, I can't oh, no. make the changes at the whatever because I don't have yeah. them all. Yeah. Um, and so they hired Mashwitz to just organise him, which would have been fine if he hadn't then keeled over in Mauschwitz's office with a heart attack. Oh, is that right? Dived at his feet. My word. And then he became the, the editor by kind of default, and he uh. wasn't really very happy because he really quite liked being the managing editor. Right. Also a deeply um, talented bloke because he was writing songs and screenplays and, then and all the rest of it. suggesting the idea for Doctor Who. So well, assumedly, the, so I understand. Like so... Yeah. When you look at early copies of Radio Times, Reith was obsessed with the fact that you might put the radio on and just listen to it as background noise. You know, insanely, when it first started, the BBC used to leave two or three minutes of dead air in between each programme so that you could wander over to your thing, turn it off, and then look in your Radio Times and go, well, I don't want to listen to the next programme because that's far too frivolous. I'll listen to this one. And, you know, and you, you'd, you had to make an appointment to listen. This is the BBC third programme, How to Listen, including How Not To, How You Ought To, and How You Won't, by Stephen Potter and Joyce Grenfell. How. And then when they went into the television uh, business... It was no different. You know, there's instructions about how you, if you're going to have a television uh, party with your friends or neighbours, you know, you should uh, invite people around prior to the programme starting, maybe offer food or, you know, some drinks, pull the curtains across, dim the lights, sit down, as if you were going to the theatre. The Radio Times is the only magazine I know to have spawned a song. In winter time or summer time or leisure time and pleasure time, 
the Daily Times and Big Ben Chimes are Radio Times. The song Radio Times was written by Henry Hall, the BBC band leader. It was an accompaniment to the Christmas edition of the Radio Times magazine in 1934, which at that point was nearing 5 million readers. If only they could get it just over that 5 million mark, well, with this song, they did. You could hear this on the BBC now and then until there were complaints from the Newspaper Proprietors Association. It was unfair, you see, promoting a magazine, and so this song, written to try and publicise that magazine, was swiftly withdrawn from broadcast. And rather sad, because it's rather jaunty. Oh yes, the 1934 BBC did not want to upset the newspapers. 1934. The Radio Times begins to feature experimental television. The first in the world. The illustrated Radio Times, some of the covers are beautiful. Do you have any particular favourites over the years? I did a book about Radio Times covers, and I'm assuming you can you can put these on the website or whatever to show mm. people, but I found one which is really simple. Oh, look at this, yeah. So this is uh, a cover by a um, female illustrator, a woman that wasn't, that was fairly rare, let's face it, it was a man's man's world back in 1934. Dorothea Braby, it's for the talks number. I printed this and I think her daughter got in contact with us and, oh. and said, you know, how much she enjoyed seeing it because she hadn't seen it for, well, since it had been published really pretty much uh, or seen it as a mother had shown it to her as, a, as an original piece of artwork. But things like that, little gems like that keep mm. coming up. My favourite is the first colour one with the, the first Christmas one where the family turn their backs to the fire. <laughs> that they've always, for centuries, gathered around the fire. Now their backs are to it as they face this new box in the corner that's invaded their homes. If I have to be absolutely mm. honest, my favourite cover is this one by John Gilroy of The Laughing Cat. Oh, yes. Uh, the Human Number. It's uh, 1936. Uh, John Gilroy, of course, used to do all the Guinness adverts. You know, I tried to reprise this for a Christmas cover, but nobody liked it, where I had uh, the cat wearing a Christmas paper hat, which I have framed <laughs> in my house, oh. but no one else gets to see it apart from me, which, unfortunately, I quite like. That's the joy. Um, the not-so-joy is when you get <laughs> things like this. So this is the Christmas number for 1930. Paul Nash. You know, absolute forefront of the modernist movement in Britain. Mm. Somebody goes along and says, could you do us our Christmas radio times go? And he goes, marvellous. And he produces what one can only really describe as an oven. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's like those brutalist buildings. Yes. Sort of. He's obviously gone to a transmitter and found this sort of piece of equipment and got very excited by it. And this is always the problem. As, as an art director, uh, they will tell you, if you get a really, really famous person to do your cover, you are on a bound to run that cover regardless of sure. what they do. No notes. So um, they were, from the very beginning, hiring really, really good names. Yes. And that's something that has pretty much continued throughout. Mm. You know, we still use illustration two or three times a year on the cover. You know, I love it. It's something that a photograph just can't do. A favourite, the, the one that always sticks in my head is a, a cover from During Wartime where you've got Santa in a tin hat. I don't know why it would appeal to me quite so much, but it, it's just one of those that always stands out. But mm. artwork on Radio Times is another podcast or four to, to cover the amount of artwork that is in early editions. Mm. I, I say early editions right the way through until probably about the 80s. You were still getting graphic covers. You, you get graphic covers now but it's it's limited to christmas and the olympics possibly 
some other sporting events, you know, like rugby. Illustrated covers, unfortunately, they don't sell as well, mm. you know. And so I, I tend to have to tie them to big events. So, you know, mm. I know the Christmas issue will sell very, very well. By putting a, a drawing on the cover, I know that it's, it, you know, it's not going to have a detrimental effect. The same with Wimbledon or the World Cup or whatever. You can marry them together. It's an event and you want to make it special. But no, if I was to just illustrate random things, I might have the... Mm. Managing director knocking on the door, going, "What's going on?" <laughs> yes, it's it's good to know you've tried. It's good to know you've given that a go. Nineteen thirty-seven, the BBC begin printing the Radio Times in-house, but within two years, war paper rationing soon cuts the magazine to twenty pages. The war hit one station effectively to start with the Home Service that covered all of the schedules. When they went to the Luftwaffe headquarters. Yeah, okay. They found all these maps, and one of the, the all, all the things in purple are sort of mm. possible targets. You know, the gas works, oh, yes. border works, whatever. But that is um, uh, the printers. Oh, uh, okay, yes. Uh, and that's all they printed was Radio Times because it was mm. so. The fact that they thought, okay, radio is a big deal in 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 Britain. If they can't find out what's on it, that will affect morale. And they did bomb it. They only killed some people that worked in a canteen. But the editor had to take the page proofs he was reading into a slit trench out the side of it yeah. when the sirens went off and was proofing pages whilst they were bombing. Wow. Um, and you just think, okay, that is absolutely how mm. they run this magazine. <laughs> After the war, you had seven home services. Right. So you had seven or seven editions of the Radio Times. And this is where it becomes difficult as a collector. 1953. TV listings sit alongside radio listings. 1957. TV listings move to the front, radio to the back. Local radio was coming in in about 1967. Local radio needed to be included in the radio times because there were different schedules. So it got to the point where... Sometime in the early 70s, there were about 27 different editions coming off of the presses. Right. The Radio Times. This is where it does become much more difficult to um, get a unique set. 1969. The first Christmas bumper issue with 14 days of listings. The Christmas double, which started in 1969, coincides sort of with the fact that up until then, and I, I vaguely remember it as a child, Christmas was kind of, it was Christmas Day and Boxing Day. Now that it's turned into this kind of weird two-week period where everyone stops work, your family moved back in with you, everyone starts arguing with themselves, sort of started in the kind of late 60s. And, mm. and I'm not suggesting Radio Times yeah. is responsible for the fact that this country shuts down for two weeks every Christmas. Yeah. But, you know, you, I've worked in America you get Christmas Day off, mm. and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I did. A, I wrote a book years ago on the history of Christmas, and you could see up until early 20th century where 
people had the time off. You know, maybe the build up to Christmas was more the exciting. Mm. Day. And as you say, after Christmas, it sort of stops. Boxing yeah. Day didn't even exist until you know 150 odd years ago. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I would say Radio Times is at least <laughs> helping perpetuate that idea uh, that we should all have you know long time off until. Because I'm there after Christmas, going, is it time to get back to work? Yeah, it's the 27th, 28th. I've got things to do. Yeah. But kids are like, no, come on, no, we're still off. We have still got the the bumper issue to get. So through. so just you know, I mean, I, whatever government is in charge, we'll have kittens if we printed a, a three weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh weeks. my God, they're all yeah, going to want three weeks. The 1970s. Future editor Shem Law begins his paper round. In 1972, I think it was, I got my first job as a paperboy and my relationship with Radio Times uh, started and I hated it. Absolutely <laughs> hated it because every Thursday, oh. you know, you'd have your big bag of papers and then, of yeah. course, it's Thursday. It's the day the Radio oh. Times up. It was a fairly well-to-do part of Cambridge. Everyone took Radio Times apart from the Labour Club that was on my route and they took a copy of the Radio Times and, as you would expect, a copy of the TV Times. Right. <laughs> but no one else took the TV Times. Uh, Radio Times moved over from newsprint in the early 80s um, over to Web Offset, which is why it goes from an, a sludgy sort of grey colour text ink on what's discolouring paper now over to nice, clear black text on white paper. Mm. Um, that happens in about 1984. Um, but prior to 84, where it was this sludginess, you didn't have the definition for photos. It was just like tabloid newspapers. The best way round that was line art and graphics. And they knew how to do it. Both my parents were illustrators. My aunt was an illustrator. Mm. And they used to work for... Radio Times, The Economist, Sunday Times, you you name it. And as a child, you were taught that if the phone rang, you went and found someone because it was a job. And if it was the Radio Times, uh, The Economist, like I say, uh, Sunday Times, then you 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 just never let them get off the phone. You go. It doesn't matter if your father was in the pub, you would go and get him out of it because this was money. Whenever the phone rang and it was said, says, is your, is, your, is your father there or is your mother there? It's the Radio Times here. I, I, there would be a slight kind of anxious feeling that would drain through me. <laughs> and you kind of go, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, off we go. Um, wow. And then there was the added problem. My parents, I guess they'd call themselves progressive or whatever. Um, they had me quite young. It was the 1960s. They decided that television was an evil thing that children shouldn't be put in front of, make your eyes go square, et cetera, et cetera. So we didn't have a television. Right, okay. Uh, in fact, we didn't have a television. I remember the day we didn't have a television. It's when uh, the uh, nice people from um, the television license found ah. detector, came and knocked on the door, and they said, uh, is your dad there? And I said, uh, he's in the bath. And they said, can we speak to him? I said, no, he's in the bath. And they said, no, 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 we really going to speak. So I went and said, to two, tell him to go away. Uh, and my father, did, as you, uh, he, very liberal with the swear words, go and tell him to go away. No, and this went on for about 10 minutes and finally came out with a towel around him. And they had a word with the next thing I knew, the television was sailing through the air as he threw it at them. And then we never had one ever wow. since. And he said, it's best for you. But because they were for the Radio Times, it used to come every week. And so, uh, I mean, it's something I say a lot is that there's, uh, there's only one thing worse 
than than having a television and not knowing what's on it. And that's not having a television and knowing exactly what's on it <laughs> and thinking, I'm missing that, I'm missing this, I'm missing the other. In the end, I just used to use it as a kind of operational map as to whose house I was going to try and get around to watch right. Blue Peter or, you know, yeah. um, Doctor Who or whatever it was. So, you know, it has been a bit of a love-hate relationship, I have to say. <laughs> but it, it put me on the career path that I'm on because I worked out that you don't want to be the person answering the phone. Right. Uh, you want to be the person that's on the other end of the phone. So yes, that's true. I've now, got a job. Would you like to take it? Now and you it, make it, those it, phone calls. Yeah, and now I make those phone calls. Yeah, that's wow. a much nicer position to be in. 1988. The Christmas Radio Times becomes the best-selling British magazine in history, shifting over 11 million copies. You had the power of Radio Times and TV Times. And that was broken in March 91. And all of a sudden, anyone that was anyone seemed to just want to jump in and produce a magazine. Well, you've reached the end of part one of this Radio Times history. But part two, a tale of deregulation and digitisation, will begin very, very shortly. We had to split this one in two because there were just so many tales to tell. Support us on patreon.com slash paulcarenza to get bonus material. This month that includes the full Shem Law interview. Further reading for you from our guests then, Dr. Steve Arnold's fantastic website is radiotimesarchive.com and a recent post on there tells us all about Herbert Parker, that forgotten Radio Times editor, in quotes, which may mean that history needs to be rewritten in the Radio Times editor's backstory. Parker perhaps written out of history, as we said, because he dared set up a rival to the Radio Times back in the 1920s. And then there are books aplenty. There's the official Radio Times cover story book. It's a marvel. There's also Radio Times The War Years. That's fantastic as well. On part two, we'll hear from Tony Curry, the author of The Radio Times Story. So see if you can get hold of a copy of that. Oh, and my book is Hark the Biography of Christmas. Well, that's only briefly about the Radio Times. And my new book, which is not out yet, is Auntie and Uncle's The Bizarre Birth of the BBC. Out before Radio Times turns 200. Promise. Stay tuned for part two of this bumper edition of the Radio Times Backstory. To play us out, here's Radio Times. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Support the podcast at patreon.com slash paulcarenza. We have nothing to do with the BBC, just like the Radio Times nowadays. Original music is by Will Farmer. Radio Times, the song, is composed by Henry Hall, and the singer is Dan Donovan. We believe it's so old that it's beyond copyright, but if we're incorrect and you are the rights holder, do let us know. We will amend forthwith. Stay informed, educated, entertained, and subscribed to the British Broadcasting Century. Radio Times.